I've entitled the message today, Eat My Flesh, Drink My Blood. We're going to be looking from John chapter 6 today. So you might want to turn in your Bibles to John 6 and keep them open as we'll be looking at uh, a number of verses or referencing a number of verses throughout the chapter uh, as we look at the passage. Well, as many of you have probably noticed, we live in a particularly divisive time in our nation's history. Certainly not the most divisive time, but still a time that is probably more polarizing than many of us can recall. There are increased tensions over economic, social, ethnic, racial, foreign policy, and even medical and public health issues. And each of these issues touches upon what it means to be a society or means to be a people and how we are to live in community with one another. That is, these are political issues, and I'm using political in the classical sense of the term. But they all touch on ethical and moral commitments that we have. And they have implications for our well-being and the well-being of those we love. And so we are passionate about these issues. And, of course, with passion often comes emotional investment. When people disagree with us over these issues, or at least some of them, we may find ourselves viewing that disagreement rather personally We may take it as a personal attack or a personal affront or as an attempt to devalue us and the things or the persons that we hold most dear. We've we've witnessed the aftermath of inflamed passions in a number of ways in recent days, from violence erupting on the streets of some cities in the United States to longtime friends breaking ties because of a hastily typed online social media post. Or the like. And the church is not immune to the negative effects of this divisive atmosphere and spirit. I've personally witnessed longtime Christian friends unfriend one another over issues being debated currently. I've seen longtime church members ostracized or even uh, pushed out for questioning the perceived wisdom or for voicing their contrary opinions, so much so that they felt compelled to leave the church with which they've identified and communed and fellowshiped for 25 years or more. Now, I don't want to downplay the significance or the importance of uh, the many political issues at hand. Right? We're passionate about them because they do matter. And, of course, wars are fought over political issues and ideals, I've personally sworn to uphold and defend the ideals enshrined in the U.S. Constitution with my own life. So I recognize that these things are important and worth caring about. But I also want to commend you, the Meadowbrook Baptist Church family, for maintaining love and unity as a hallmark of this church body, even during these divisive times. And as divisive as things are right now, they're not nearly as divisive as the topic we're going to consider this morning. Or perhaps I should say it like this, they're not as divisive as the words of Jesus that we're going to consider this morning. In what is perhaps the most divisive teaching in the Bible, 
And there are a lot of them, most notably the gospel itself can be divisive. Jesus here challenged his hearers and his followers to take seriously his sacrifice and his call for them to do the same. And the way he challenged them was shocking. And it didn't go well for him, by the way. Many of his followers abandoned him here. You might be thinking, what are you talking about, John? Well, let's look at the Bible. In John chapter 6, we're going to be reading uh, a few scattered verses here, beginning in verse 53. We're going to read through 58, then we're going to read 60 through 63, and then 66 through 69. If you're able to, would you please join me in standing in honor of the reading of God's word? Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And then picking up in verse 60, he says, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And in verse 66, from that moment... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied them. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, as I noted, this is a particularly divisive, these words at least were particularly divisive, and this teaching is hard, hard to understand. So let's take just a few moments to consider what Jesus meant here. First thing I would encourage us to do is to think about the context. So if you still have your Bible open, you might want to turn back a page, uh, probably to the beginning of chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6 of John, we have the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, as you may know, signs are particularly important in John's gospel, and the miraculous feeding is itself a sign of Jesus' identity, right, of who he was. This miraculous feeding points to his deity. But the meaning of the story and its function in John's gospel actually goes even deeper than uh, pointing to Jesus' ability to defy the fundamental laws of nature, like walking on water, by the way, which followed right after the feeding narrative. 
The crowd had followed Jesus to the other side of the lake because of the healing ministry he had performed. We see that in verse 2. And it becomes clear that the people were following him, or maybe I should even say they were investigating him, uh, for some very practical reasons. They wanted him to meet their physical needs. And they wanted to know if he was the promised Messiah, who they believed would lead Israel in a successful rebellion against the foreign oppressor, that is Rome. And we see this in their actions at the end of the story of the feeding where they conclude that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, and they try to, this is kind of humorous, they try to force him to become their king. That's in verses 14 and 15. It says they tried to make him king by force. Now, while the crowd was correct in seeing Jesus as the Messiah, its understanding of what that meant and what that means was incorrect. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And here in this teaching, he's trying to point them to a deeper spiritual reality. And so he runs away from the crowd, but they find him. And this sets up the discourses between Jesus and the crowd and Jesus and his disciples concerning bread, manna, salvation, eating of flesh and drinking of blood, and of course, Jesus' ultimate mission. And that's what we see in the rest of chapter 6. And so our message today is actually quite simple and has really only one main point. Of course, I'm going to have three sub-points, so I am Baptist after all. One main point, and that's this. We are called to remember Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf as we partake in the elements of bread and wine, or grape juice, which represent his body and blood. And we do this by faith. That's kind of a long single point, but it gets to all the elements I want to highlight. And so in our passage then, what we're going to see is we're going to see that the partaking of Jesus' flesh and blood are symbolic. And we can see this by three means or three reasons. One, Jesus' constant contrast of the physical and the spiritual. Two, the misunderstanding of Jesus' words by the Jews at Capernaum where he was preaching. And three, the placement of faith as the key element in the story, in all these interactions. So let's talk about each one of these for a moment. First, the contrast of the physical and the spiritual. At the very beginning of Jesus' confrontation with the crowd, that is, once they chased him down, he confronts them. And he chastises them for their motives in looking for them. Right? He accuses them of seeking more physical nourishment. In 626, he says this, You are looking for me not because of the signs, right? not because of who I am, not because you want to worship, not because you want to know me as God, but rather because you ate and you were filled. And he goes on to encourage them. He says, work for spiritual food. And he contrasts that with food that spoils in verse 27. That is with physical food. He can give food that leads to eternal life. Now, upon hearing that notion, two things should come to mind for us. 
One, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, where he spoke of living water, right? The living water of the Holy Spirit that offers an eternal quenching of spiritual thirst. And two, Jesus' temptation, where he refuted the devil by noting that his food is to do the will of the Father and his nourishment is found in the Word of God. Right? That, the, the point is that there is spiritual food that supersedes physical food. There is spiritual food that's better than even Godiva chocolate cheesecake from Cheesecake Factory. And that stuff is really, really good. Later also, Jesus contrasts himself with the manna in the desert. That's in verses 49 through 51 and also verse 58. The Jews remember manna. It was something unique, something miraculous and mysterious, a substance unlike anything they had ever seen before. We don't really know what it was. In fact, its name, as you probably know, means, what is it? Apparently, it was a flowery, bread-like substance that God provided to them in the wilderness so that they would not literally starve to death. It required the people to depend upon God for their daily sustenance because it only lasted until nightfall on most days, except for the day of the Sabbath, so they weren't picking uh, it up on the Sabbath. But manna was a gift from God to his people. It promoted faith, and it literally saved them from certain immediate death. But here's Jesus' point. It was merely a physical substance that preserved their lives for a season. The people still died, even after eating that heavenly food. Now, you may know this, but many ancient religions include myths of foods of the gods that impart special powers or status to those who consume them. Most commonly, mortals who eat or drink these divine foods are granted eternal life or made into godlike beings. Yet here, Jesus refutes any such interpretation of manna, even though some of it had even been stored in a jar inside the Ark of the Covenant. Right, The manna, despite its divine origin and exalted status in Israel's history, had only a temporary effect, and that effect was only physical. By contrast, Jesus himself is a heavenly bread that offers eternal life because he is eternal. The physical manna, the physical bread, is a representation of the spiritual manna the sacrifice of Jesus. And so by contrasting the physical and the spiritual, Jesus wants to point the people beyond what they see with their physical eyes. And instead, he seeks to encourage them to use their spiritual eyes to see into the very reality of who he is and what he has come to do, that he is the Son of God who has taken on flesh in order to offer himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of of the people. So the contrast between the physical and the spiritual. Secondly, we see this in the misunderstanding of the Jews. Jesus' hearers misunderstood his teaching in two important ways. 
First, they misunderstood his origins. When Jesus claimed to be the bread of life that had come down from heaven, the Jewish leaders did not understand. They reasoned that he could not have come from heaven because they knew his parents, and some there probably even knew him from birth. We see that in verses 41 and 42. And since he had a physical birth, he could not have come from heaven. They seem to have thought that he would have had to have come down in the, cl- in the clouds physically, probably fully formed and fully grown. They were taking his claim about coming from heaven and being the bread of heaven to be a visible, physical, space and time claim about his origins. But we know that Jesus was not talking about his physical origins and was instead talking about spiritual reality because his answer to them references the need for divine illumination and insight for understanding of his teaching and identity. It's not something you can just see physically. God must enable them to have spiritual insight to see who he is, right? God has to illumine you in verses 44 through 46. And he even cites Isaiah 54, which refers to the final salvation of Israel by God, God's culmination of his creation uh, plans, right after the passage about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right? Jesus is the suffering servant who is also going to bring God's plan to its final culmination. Second, they misunderstood his encouragement to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Right upon hearing this, many of the people were filled with indignation. Right in verse 60, we're told that they said, this is a hard teaching, who can follow it? But it's not as if they were sitting amongst themselves having a philosophical discussion about what he really meant or trying to figure out how the accidental properties may be transformed while the essential properties remain the same. No, they were grumbling because they took the words literally and they simply could not accept it. They thought he was crazy. And because of this overly literal interpretation, they stopped following him. But we know that their literal interpretation was wrong because of Jesus' response to their grumbling. He first asks them if his ascension would help them believe. In verse 62, in essence, he challenges their ability to see spiritually. They can't see that he is the Son of God who came from the Father in heaven. And we also see that Jesus did not mean the exhortation uh, to be taken literally because he goes on to contrast the physical and the spiritual, referencing the words he just spoke to them in verse 63. He says this, The Spirit is he who gives life. And listen to this, the flesh, right, the physical, does nothing. The words I spoke are spirit and our life. And last, we see that the eating and drinking were not to be taken literally as literal flesh and blood by Peter's response to Jesus when asked if they, the twelve, were going to abandon Jesus as well. And this leads to the third point, the placement of faith as the key element in the story. When asked, Peter says nothing about eating and drinking. Right, if the key to salvation were really to be found in a literal eating of flesh and drinking of blood, we should expect Peter to say, and, and John also to record it, 
something in reference to their willingness to eat and drink, right? You expect Peter to say, uh, well, Lord, we don't understand what you mean, but, you know, hey, we'll, we'll eat and drink your flesh or, or eat your flesh and drink your blood if that's what you say to do. But there's nothing about that in Peter's response. Instead, what does Peter say? He says this, there is no one else to whom we can go. You have the words of eternal life. And then, and then what does he say? We believe and know you are the Holy One of God. Verse 69. Peter's confession then is the high point of the chapter. Everything up to this point has been building up to it. And it identifies the key to understanding Jesus' hard, divisive teaching. And it's this simple. Faith. Right? As simple as the gospel and the good news. It's faith. And of course, Jesus pointed to this truth too, that faith is the key, right from the very beginning. When the crowds first asked him what works they should do to inherit eternal life, right? Jesus told them, believe in me in verses 28 and 29. Thus, eating his flesh and drinking his blood is located in believing him. And Jesus plainly and clearly said it. He said in verses 47 and 48, Anyone who believes has eternal life. So you might be asking, John, why the talk of eating flesh and drinking blood? I believe there are two very different purposes in these images, both of which are tied to the Israelite sacrificial practices. Of course, they point to Jesus as the sacrifice. But one, eating flesh is a reference to the practice of eating the sacrificial animal. Worshippers would sacrifice the animal and then they would eat portions of it in celebration of God's grace, faithfulness, and his provision. It was an act of faith to eat the flesh of the creature because it was not in the eating that peace with God was made, but it was in the faith of the participants. Eating Jesus' flesh, then, is an image of participating in him by faith. Drinking blood, I believe, is meant to point the hearers to the spiritual meaning of the teaching that I've been explaining this whole time. Because drinking blood is forbidden in the Old Testament law. Right? The Israel, Israelites were never permitted We're never supposed to drink blood of any kind, even the sacrificial animals, because we're told in Leviticus the life is in the blood. So Jesus' reference to drinking blood was scandalous, so scandalous that the hearers should have immediately known that it was not to be taken literally but spiritually. And so in all of this, then, Jesus invites his followers to participate in him, to appropriate the blessings of his sacrifice in their lives and his sacrifice on theirs, and I guess we should say it like this, on our behalf by faith so that we might have eternal life. So for us today, the call is a call to faith. For us today, as we take the bread and the grape juice, We should remember that they serve as reminders of that sacrifice of Christ. 
and they proclaim, and as we take it, we proclaim our unity with him and with one another by faith in him because of that sacrifice. And so even now, we take the elements. Let's take up the elements together as a symbol of our unity as Christ's body at Meadowbrook Baptist Church. Let me say a prayer for us first, and and then we'll take the elements. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for your word to us this day. We thank you that salvation is truly as simple as believing your word and trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, as we take the elements, we pray that you would examine us. We confess our sins to you now. We confess with sorrow, but also with hope and thanksgiving, knowing that you have already made provision for our forgiveness in Jesus' death on the cross. We pray that as we take the elements together, that we do so with a view to exalting your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.